We're looking at Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, and there's a lot of big chapters in Exodus. Exodus 3 is arguably like the biggest, and there is so much here that there's no way we're going to get everything in, in one. So I showed some restraint, and I thought, okay, we're going to do this in two weeks, not one week. Uh, we're going to unpack especially the first half of Exodus 3, 1 to 15, but we're going to read the whole section both this week and next. So Moses and the burning bush. Here is the text for the evening. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that the bush was on fire, though it was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to Moses from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I have seen the way that the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, well, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God right here on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is who you are to say, this is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. This is God's word. Again, we're working our way through the book of Exodus. and We've subtitled the entire series and said as a theme for the book of Exodus, we're calling it the journey of every believer. And what we mean by that is Exodus is real history. It's real historical events that happened. And yet, very clearly by God's design, it's recorded in such a way so that the narrative arc of the book of Exodus patterns the narrative arc of every believer, the voyage of every Christian, from the deliverance from slavery of sin, deliverance that comes by a special prince that God sends, Deliverance that comes miraculously through water, in our case, the waters of baptism, ultimately on a voyage to eventually get to the promised land, which we refer to as heaven, 
but we're not there yet, and so we're wandering and unfortunately often stumbling for like a lifetime in the wilderness. You see the pattern? Okay. Well, last week we were introduced to Moses in the first two chapters. And remember, he's not real great shape. He's had a couple of interesting things that shaped his life according to the sovereignty of God, but at this point he's killed a guy and he's running for his life and he's running to a far off land. Um, Moses can't find a place amongst the Israelites, can't find a place amongst the Egyptians. He runs to the far side of uh, the Sinai Peninsula, so you can maybe see it on the upper left-hand corner of the screen there on that map, across the entire Sinai Peninsula to like what in his mind is practically the other side of the world in the land of the Midianites. And it's there that he's actually at a well where he's trying to get some water that he, fends, uh, he defends some women who are watering their flocks there, some Midianite women from some apparently like aggressive farmers. And he fends them off and, and sort of rescues them. They tell their dad, who is a Midianite priest by the name of Jethro, this is what this Egyptian guy, they perceive him as Egyptian, this Egyptian guy did for me, he rescued us And Jethro, the Midianite priest, says, well, we should reciprocate the kindness. So he invites Moses to come and live with him, and eventually Moses actually marries one of Jethro's daughters, a woman named Zipporah. But see, Moses doesn't still have a people. He's a foreigner in a foreign land, and you'll notice he's a shepherd. He doesn't even interact with people anymore. (laughs) Like this, he's done with people. Uh, The Egyptians don't want him. The Israelites don't want him. And for that matter, he's a foreigner amongst the Midianites and they don't want him. And he's just wandering with sheep uh, from day to day out in the wilderness. And he's in a spot called Horeb in the Sinai Peninsula that is a, it's got a special mountain range there and a famous mountain called Mount Sinai. And it's there while he's near this mountain that God calls out to him from this strange site. Well, what is the site? He sees a bush that won't burn up. Now specifically what it says here in verses two to three is, though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. See, sometimes in the desert, you would get brush fires, and you still can theoretically get this today, but uh, you know, either it's lightning strikes and causes a fire, or some travelers through the desert started a fire and never fully put it out before they left, and so there's just this fire, but eventually, eventually it goes out. Uh, Moses has been shepherding for at least 40 years now, and by this, he's seen it all, out what can happen in the wilderness. He's never seen a shrub, he's seen these fires, he's never seen a shrub that just burns but never burns up. That's bizarre. And he's gonna go over and investigate that. He sees this paradigm shifting, worldview changing event. Something is happening outside of the way he expects things to happen. And he wants to investigate it further. And he goes over and God calls out to him from amidst the burning bush. And he says, first of all, Moses, he calls him over, but don't come any further. Why? Well, you're standing on holy ground and you should take your sandals off. Why? It's holy ground not because this is a special location. Don't think of it magically like that. It's holy ground because he is in the presence of God. And this God further reveals to Moses, I am the God of your ancestors, the God of the people that you yourself identify with, the Hebrews. I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and I've been listening to them crying out for help for all these years and I have come to deliver them. And You know, when you bring deliverance, you don't just deliver from something bad, but you always deliver to something. 
We'll talk about that more next week, but you deliver to something good, and so God brings them from the, he wants to bring them from the oppression that they're currently facing at the hands of the Egyptians, but he says, I want to take you to a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, I remember hearing that as a kid, a land flowing with milk and honey, and thinking, what kind of Willy Wonka region is this that is just, you know, what does that even mean? But uh, as an adult, you know, psychologically, I get that. In the ancient world, milk, like if, if you were to get a high fat content in your diet, where is it gonna come from? Probably milk. And for that matter, if you're gonna taste anything that's sweet in nature, or if you're gonna get sugar, where is it gonna come from? Honey. So like fat and sugar. In other words, like the two most appealing tastes universally to all human beings. What God is essentially saying is, I'm going to take you from a place that is universally unappealing as an experience for existence, and I'm going to bring you to a place that is as appealing as conceivably possible for humans. Because I've heard your cry, and you're my people, and I'm compassionate, and I want to help you. But the catch in all of this, it sounds great up to this point, but God says, yeah, and Moses, here's the deal. I'm going to send you and you're gonna to go to Pharaoh, and you're gonna go into Egypt, and you're gonna be the leader of my people in this deliverance. And remember, Moses grew up in the Pharaoh's palace. He grew up uh, for 40 years, he was kind of a somebody. He was kind of a big deal. But that all changed when he screwed his life up. And he really royally messed up, and he killed a guy, and nobody wanted him, and the Egyptians didn't want him, and the Hebrews don't want him, and the Midianites don't want him, and he basically only interacts with sheep at this point in his life. He's 80 years old, he's out in the middle of the desert. He, he's, he's a nobody at this point. And so Moses is making these excuses. God, like, don't, I, I don't want you to use me. You can't use me, I'm incapable of doing this. And God essentially says, yeah, you're right, you are incapable of doing this on your own. But that was the problem in the past. You were trying to deliver the Hebrews on your own and you took matters into your own hands and that's what screwed things up. Now that you've been humbled after 80 years, now that you realize I can't do this on my own, now I can use you. Now you can lead my people. And God can choose whomever or whatever he wants to accomplish his purpose and he's chosen Moses. And yet Moses is still bringing these objections and these excuses and he says, you know what, I... Uh, am not capable, they won't listen. What am I supposed to tell these people when I try to deliver them? And he says, look, Moses, I'm the God of your ancestors, but I'm not just the God of your ancestors. I'm actually the one true God. And that's where he uses his, his name here. And sometimes we call this his proper name. Uh, some people insist on calling it Jehovah. That's probably not right. We're almost certain that's not how it's pronounced. Sometimes we transliterate it in English as Yahweh. That's, we don't know. It's, it's really, it's almost an impossible concept to translate because it's the Hebrew for the verb to be, to be. Um, if you've ever studied like languages, uh, you understand the most important word in any language is the verb form to be. Everything hinges on that. Uh, it's whatever, whatever you want to call it, a linking verb, or but it, it's like the word in every language. And you notice here, he also doesn't use the past tense and he doesn't use the future tense. He doesn't say, I was, and he doesn't say, I will be. Very clearly, he uses this concept, I am who I am. 
What that means, at the very least what it means is I have no beginning, I have no end, I am not this or that. In other words, I'm not dependent on anything or anyone and in fact, everything else in the universe is dependent on me. I'm the source of everything. I am, that's what, you know, in short, I am who I am is the concept of it. It's a huge concept. We're gonna get into that a little bit more next week but for now, here's our text and I wanna unpack two big ideas. The first one's gonna last a little bit longer than the second one, but in the first half of the text, two enormous concepts. First of all, the burning bush concept. And I couldn't land on a word. I, either, I didn't know whether to call this the, the, the idea that conversion requires disruption or that calling requires disruption. And one of the things that I want you to do in your growth groups later on this week is I want you to actually discuss this. Was this Moses' conversion experience? Remember, he's born and raised in a believing household. His Hebrew parents certainly know the true God and yet, man, half the commentators that I read this past week will say, you know, maybe this actually is his conversion. There's a lot of reasons for why that might be. At the very least, you can say this is his calling and therefore, at the very least, whether you're talking conversion or calling in life, it almost always requires some disruption. Now, All you have to do is a little survey of the Bible and see the characters that God calls to use for his purposes. (laughs) They're always almost, they're almost always doing something. So like Gideon, one of the judges, is threshing grain when God calls him. And um, Samuel is tending to the tabernacle when God calls him. And Elisha is plowing the fields when God calls him. And David is shepherding when God calls him. And a lot of Jesus' disciples are managing their fishing business when Jesus calls them. And Matthew is literally collecting taxes when Jesus calls him. And you get this recurring theme very clear. I think this is more than just, you know, God likes hardworking, busy people. I think it's more the concept that for people to accomplish God's purposes, it requires us to forfeit some earthly busyness. You follow that? If you are going to carry out God's calling upon your life, it probably is going to require relinquishing some of the earthly busyness that you might uh, be involved with. All I know is every time God calls into your life, it's disruptive. And he calls into Moses' life while Moses is busy shepherding. And what's the thing that he uses to get Moses' attention? How does he distract Moses from the busyness of life? How does he disrupt Moses' life? Well, it comes in the form of a Burning bush. Holy smokes, this is a huge, huge, now why is this so weird? Why is this so bizarre? Well, a bush, a shrub, a plant can't just keep burning. It can burn. So we know that, uh, for instance, the wildfires out west, they can continue to burn because they move and that's part of the danger of them because they're constantly looking for additional fuel source. They're constantly and rapidly moving. But one tree isolated in and of itself cannot burn up because it doesn't have a continual fuel source. So Moses is saying, okay, I've seen wildfires, I've seen uh, brush fires, I've, seen, I've never seen one tree, one shrub continuously stay raging on fire like this perpetually. What is this? What is going on exactly? And the concept then is, is this. The burning bush is something that, according to your worldview, it can't happen. It shouldn't happen. It's the way, you know, you you think the way you look at the world, things should generally work out like this, but this is a total 
uh, paradigm-shifting disruption that exists in your life, enough so that Moses is inclined to go over there and set aside his sheep for a little while to take a look at this thing. Now, a couple things to keep in mind here. Remember why Moses is here in the first place. Things didn't go quite right in life. Um, so remember, he's, he's born, he nearly dies just at his birth, so he dodges a bullet there. He's supposed to have died there according to the Pharaoh's decree, but he's, he's spared that. Uh, he gets essentially rescued, but then placed into his biological uh, family's home as mom is his nanny for the first five to eight years of his life. But then he gets ripped out of that home, which is a pretty jarring experience at five or eight years old. He gets placed in the palace. He's raised in the palace for 40 years, but at that point, he so closely identifies with his native people, the Hebrews, that in a fit of rage one day, he goes outside and he kills an Egyptian taskmaster. And now everybody hates him. The Egyptians hate him and the Hebrews hate him and he travels to the other side of the world over to the Midianites and the Midianites don't seem to like him either and now he's 80 years old, he's a total has-been, he's completely washed up and he's tending to sheep in the, in the middle of the wilderness but notice, all that stuff had to happen in order for Moses to be next to that burning bush. Let me reverse engineer that for a second. In order for Moses to encounter God, all the terrible things in life that happened had to happen. Think about that anytime you're going through something in life that you singly would not choose for yourself. Okay, so Moses is next to this burning bush. He's set aside uh, all of his sheep uh, and he's disrupted by the burning bush. Again, what's the burning bush? If it's, in true, it's, if it's in fact true that Exodus is the journey of every believer, as we're saying, then again, the narrative arc of Exodus patterns the narrative arc of our walks in faith. So what is the burning bush in our lives? A burning bush is something that occurs in life that you cannot make sense of. It's a paradigm-shifting encounter that God uses to cause you to rethink your value system, rethink the way the world operates with the end goal that he draws you closer to himself and that you then see his mission for your life as your mission for your life. Generally speaking, people don't encounter God unless something or someone comes into their life that they cannot fully comprehend, that so disrupts their way of thinking of how the world works. Let me give you an example of this and I think it'll make a little bit more sense. Um, kind of a famous example actually. A guy by the name of Francis Collins. Dr. Francis Collins is, his name has popped up in the news a lot in 2020 uh, because of the pandemic because he's the director at the National Institute of Health. Uh, but Francis Collins is probably on the short list of five to 10 most influential scientists in the past 40, 50 years. In the early 90s under the Clinton administration, he was appointed as the director of the Human Genome Project. In the 90s, uh, we were very, I mean, still are today, but starting then, very interested in understanding the, the physical and functional components to human genetics. And so he was mapping the human uh, genetic sequence. He was mapping human DNA. And Collins, up until this point in his life, he is what's called a materialist or a naturalist, an atheist. He believes that everything that you experience in the universe has a naturalistic explanation. However, when he studied, started studying human DNA in depth, what he saw was that there was such a complexity there and such an order there that it couldn't have been by random chance. And here's the simplest way that I know how to 
I mean, I, I had it explained to me once this way and I thought it was really helpful, so I'm gonna put it in these terms. If you, if, are you familiar with like alphabet cereal or alphabet SpaghettiOs or something like that? Some kind of children's food that is, the things are in letters, right? If you came downstairs on your birthday and you looked in an alphabet, a bowl of alphabet soup and it said, happy birthday, Jimmy, I love you. And your mom had set it, you know, set it out for you. You would not think, oh my goodness, how on earth did this possibly happen? And on my birthday, you would assume that she arranged each of those little pieces in such a way so that it spelled it out. You would assume that there was an intelligent being, an intelligent force behind that because stuff like that is so statistically impossible, it doesn't just happen. That's just common sense. Well, that same kind of common sense is what Francis Collins applied to his study of the human genome sequence, uh, genome project. And he said very clearly, this is so complex, so sophisticated, so orderly, and nature does not produce order. Nature devolves things into chaos, not into order. And therefore, this has to be the product of an intelligent being somebody that is outside of the natural realm or the supernatural. He writes this book in 2007 called The Language of God, A Scientist Presents Evidence for Belief. And uh, it becomes a New York Times bestseller and he's interviewed by the political website Salon uh, shortly afterwards and asked about the book and here's what he says. He says, when you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it, the universe, knew we were coming. He says there's 15, 15 constants, like physical constants uh, and laws. The gravitational constant, uh, various constants about the strong and weak nuclear forces, the electromagnetic force, etc., that have precise values. If any one of those constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases, one part in a million million, if any one of those, so it's all compounded, the universe couldn't have actually come to the point where we see it today. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxy, no stars, no planets, or people. He's talking about the statistical improbability of life in our universe. He's talking about the statistical improbability of our universe, and he puts it even more bluntly, actually, in the language of God. He says, it would be very difficult to explain why the universe would have begun in just this way, except as the act of a God who intended to create beings like us. See, here's my point. For Francis Collins, DNA was his burning bush. It, he previously thought the universe was just a random collocation of atoms that were more or less fighting for survival, but when he actually saw human genes as impossibly precise, it broke his paradigm he realized there must, this must have come from the brilliance of a higher power because something that formerly he would have thought was not possible became possible. Something that couldn't happen, happened and it completely tore apart his old framework of thinking and at that moment he fell down, he repented, he took his sandals off, so to speak, and he worshiped God in awe and wonder. That was his burning bush. Now you say, okay, well maybe, most of us are not the directors of the National Institute of Health. Most of us are not geniuses and do burning bushes happen in other people's lives too. I've, I'm not even gonna get into it because I've rehashed this for you guys so many times in my own personal life. There was a time when I was a young adult where I wanted something desperately and I thought if I got that one thing, then all my problems in life would go away, then I would finally be happy. I got that thing and I collapsed into a depression. 
Not because the circumstances of my life were so bad, but because it completely shattered my worldview. Let me give you a better example of that. Many of you have heard the story before, the story of Job. Job collapses for about 40 chapters in the book of Job. Why is that? If your answer to why that is is because, well, he lost everything. He lost his, his health and his wealth and his family. That can't be the answer because he doesn't spend 40 chapters, if you actually read it carefully, he doesn't spend 40 chapters lamenting how much I miss my family and how much I miss my stuff. He spends 40 chapters talking to his friends about what? How can this possibly be? This is not the way I thought God operated. His idea that if you believe the right things and you do the right things, then God will bless you accordingly, that idea, that religious instinct collapsed. And you'll notice at the end of the book, it isn't until the end of the book that Job actually encounters God and God essentially says, Job, give me a little bit of credit. I'm a little more complex than do good things and I'll bless you and do bad things and I'll punish you. I'm a little more complex than Santa Claus I'm a little more complex than like a vending machine that just needs the right buttons hit. Now the important thing to keep in mind is did Job worship God before that encounter? Yeah, of course. Job was a believer. Job was the most righteous man alive. He knew about God, but he didn't encounter God until after he went through everything. The loss that he experienced, that was his burning bush. Okay, so you see, this is part of the reason why none of us is actually equipped to run our own lives because all of our instincts and all of our intuitions about how religion works and how God should work are completely inaccurate. None of these people would have actually put themselves in those specific spots to encounter God. Moses was not tending his sheep out there thinking, I'm gonna meet and encounter God in his grace today. Moses was just tending his sheep. Francis Collins was just working on uh, genetics studies. I was just trying to get through high school. Job was just trying to enjoy his life a little bit. But God is essentially saying, look, I can take anything and anyone and use it to serve as a burning bush that blows somebody's mind, calls them to repentance, draws them close to me, at which point I then can send them out. And that's maybe the craziest part in the whole deal, is that God brings Moses in here, these uh, experience that shift the thinking and humble the heart and you encounter him, but he only brings you in with the intention that he's gonna send you out like as a burning bush. Here's what I mean by that. Um, you remember the burning bush concept is something that you wouldn't expect. Two things that seem incongruent but somehow you realize are. And this past week I was thinking, okay, as God sends us out essentially as his light into the world, as burning bushes in the world, Christians have to serve as some kind of interesting dichotomy that makes people rethink the way they live life. So for instance, each, week this pa- each day this past week I jotted down somebody in my life who I thought functions sort of in this way. And what I ended up jotting down each day was a young earth creationist who was a very influential scientist, a young Christian couple who all their uh, non-believing friends know that they do not engage in premarital sex, Somebody who I wouldn't describe as wealthy who gives away an insane amount of money. An incredibly humble leader. See, it's Christians who don't fall into cliche categories and parties and um, groups. These believers encountered 
God in the burning bush and they became one themselves. They encountered the grace and truth of Jesus Christ and then they became the grace and truth of God in life as Christians. Now, that gets me to my second point. The second point's gonna be a lot shorter here. Here's how this becomes possible because of the angel of the Lord. See, encountering God and the burning bush experience and all that stuff is, is great. But keep this in mind. Where does Moses encounter God? He's in a fire. Now, a fire is an interesting theme throughout the Bible and especially in the Old Testament too because think about the properties of a fire. A fire is, in one sense, it's beautiful. You realize this because in 2020, uh, we still have fireplaces in our homes. Does anybody need a fireplace in their home in 2020? No, probably not. We like them because they're, they're pretty. You know, it sets, sets the ambiance for the room and everything. We don't need a fire. We like to look at the pretty fire. Number two, there's a function attached to it. So fire gives off heat, but it also, it can, there's a lot of food, a lot of meat that's completely inedible unless it passes through fire. So there's a function attached to fire. Number three, it's necessary for life. Don't forget that uh, the sun in the sky is just a big ball of fire. If the fire, fires of the universe go out, the universe ceases to exist as we know it. Life ceases to exist, so it's absolutely necessary for life. And yet, there's a, there's a flip side to this. Fire can be a little bit dangerous, too, which is one of the reasons why you have to teach little kids to not go near and put their hands in the pretty fire because they're gonna get burnt. Now, what does that all mean? Throughout the Old Testament, especially in Exodus, God's people have a tremendous awareness that God is a consuming fire. In other words, they know fire destroys anything weaker, anything less pure, anything less holy. And therefore, one of the things that, you know, I, I read through on this section probably a dozen commentaries this past week, and at least half of the commentators mentioned that the great miracle of the burning bush account is not the fact that the bush did not burn up. The great miracle of the burning bush account is the fact that Moses didn't get burned up. Why? Moses is a murderer. And right here he is being welcomed into the presence of a holy God. Now how is that possible? The secret to the whole text actually is in verse two. It says, there the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in flames of fire from within a bush. Now, the angel of the Lord, uh, this isn't an angel like when we hear about Gabriel in the New Testament, just bringing a message. The angel of the Lord and God and Lord are all used completely interchangeably in this text, which must mean the angel of the Lord is the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus before he became human, And you know what he's doing in this bush? He's doing the exact same thing for Moses that he's eventually going to come in the New Testament to do for all humanity. He is bridging the gap between God and man by mediating the holiness of God that should consume us. Uh, See, throughout the Old Testament, God's people understood they were God's people and God wanted to have a relationship with them, but because of their sins, they could not get close to God. Right? They only went into the most holy place once a year and that was just the high priest and that was like he went backwards and didn't look directly at anything because of the holiness of God. Sinful human beings can't just of their own enter into that presence and so what they did day after day, never did a day go by where they didn't make sacrifices. 
Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, and therefore, uh, they made these sacrifices where they took an innocent, unblemished animal, and they slaughtered it, and they tossed it into a fire on an altar, and that could somehow reconcile them to God. You get to the New Testament, however, and you realize that every single one of those Old Testament sacrifices pointed ahead to one final sacrifice, which is the reason why we don't slaughter animals and toss them into fires in our worship services today. Because the final sacrifice is complete. The final sacrifice is one who would get slaughtered and tossed into the fire of hell for our sins. But because Jesus was perfect, because he so loved the world, he voluntarily became the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Bible says the moment you believe that, not the moment you do anything, not the moment you deliver yourself or deliver anyone or do any. The moment you simply believe that Jesus loved you enough to jump in the fire in your place and be slaughtered for you, you become what Martin Luther described as simul justus et peccator. That's Latin for simultaneously justified and sinful. That's, you know what that is? Simultaneously at the same time, justified and sinful. That's a paradox. That's something that happened that according to our logic shouldn't happen. That means you become a burning bush. You are sinful, but God has declared you not guilty because there's a perfect man who got into that fire for you, just like he did for Moses. See, what that means is no matter what you've done, you're welcome into God's company. You're welcome into God's presence. I know it doesn't always feel like it. One day it will, because we're not to the promised land yet, and that day it will feel like that. But in the meantime, God is going to get you through the wilderness, and he's gonna use you to help lead others. And if you allow him, he will make you a light that shines his grace into the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you took the ultimate fire so that we can live in the presence of God forever in the promised land but we're asking that you help us through the wilderness right now. We are incapable of facing the pharaohs on our own, but you go before us. So we follow confidently praising you and glorifying your name. And in your name we pray, amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.